Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, the official Loganberry Books podcast series. We are a local indie bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Every week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, reveal niche stories about Loganberry, link you to local authors, ask some interesting questions about the literary world, and check in with our friendly bookstar cat, Otis. Join our listener support program, where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to help keep this podcast going. Go to our website, loganberrybooks.com, and follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts, all at Loganberry Books, to stay up to date and to find out how to best support us during these ever-shifting times. Thank you for listening, and enjoy. The Intellect and Inspiration Local Voices series seeks to engage and motivate the listener during these challenging times through the thought-provoking work of a local author. This week, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden interviews Dr. Todd Michney and Kathleen Crowther, creators of the book The Making of Cleveland's Black Suburb in the City, Lisaville and Lee Harvard. We have to kind of, again, balance that perspective between agency and people personally striving and succeeding despite adversity, but also how even relatively affluent Black families are disadvantaged in the society as a whole and um, have not been able to uh, accumulate the same amount of personal and family wealth that white families have. We have to also look at the bigger picture of structural inequality and the kind of roadblocks that were set up in front of people. Record those success stories, appreciate those success stories, but not just then assume that everything's fine. This is the first episode of two that features Maisha's conversation with Todd and Kathleen about the work of the Cleveland Restoration Society and bringing a predominantly unknown history to the public. Make sure to tune in next week for the latter half of their discussion. Their book can be purchased at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links in the description. Today, I have with me uh, Todd Mishney and also Kathleen Crowder, and we're discussing their, um, their book, uh, put out by Cleveland Restoration Society, The Making of Cleveland's Black Suburb in the City, Lisaville and Lee Harvard, a project of the Cleveland Restoration Society. So I want to start by asking you, can you orient the audience? Can you tell them, um, Todd or, or Kathleen, where is Lisaville? Where is Lee Harvard? Sure. Lee Harvard and Lisaville are in Southeast Cleveland and comprise the majority of Ward 1 in the city of Cleveland. So it, um, uh, the spine of the area is Lee Road, which goes north to south. So it is south of Shaker Heights. Uh, and then um, Harvard goes east to west, generally speaking, and same with Miles, generally speaking. And I always like to encourage people to get off of Lee Road because Lee Road is sort of a commercial strip with um, not a lot of visual interest and the streets off of Lee Road are really quite beautiful. So the southern section of um, the area is bounded by 
480 and Garfield Heights. I would just add that this area of the city uh, was annexed comparatively late. Uh, there's in fact a independent village of Miles Heights that existed uh, briefly in the 1920s. And so being an area that was added to the city later, it has more of a suburban feel and it is common with other areas on the west side as a place where people were still moving and building houses in the 1950s and even 1960s. And especially because there was a pre-established African-American presence, it became really, really important as an area for upperly mobile black families to move to. And if this area is not so well known by Clevelanders on the whole, I think that that's really unfortunate because this was such an important uh, place and such a aspiration for people to move to at this time, at a time when African-Americans had difficulty finding new, modern, good quality housing. This was really where it was at. And I think that maybe what's happened is that as other suburbs uh, like Shaker Heights, Warrensville Heights, um, uh, Woodmere, um, Solon in more recent years opened up, I think that we've kind of forgotten just how important of a place this was at the time. Okay, that's interesting. So let's, um, actually, let's take a step back and talk about the actual publication itself, um, The Making of Cleveland's Black Suburb in the, um, in the City. So Kathleen, you spearheaded this project with um, another, a number of grant sources. I wanna say that when I look at the publication, it's one of the most uh, extraordinary books of its kind being put out in Cleveland. There are a number of organizations working on oral history projects um, in the city of Cleveland, but this one, you know, it's made with uh, excellent paper. Um, it's really got a lot of fantastic archival material uh, with the pictures. And I wanna ask you about your editorial decisions about why the publication looks the way that it does. I, I do wanna say that I have a certain amount of background with this working at Loganberry Books where we take the physicality of books very seriously. And in fact, there's even um, you know, a book, there's a book binding business within Loganberry and we do restoration. So we, we know with our work that the seriousness with which you take a book actually relates to its printing itself. So can I ask you about, you know, like why did you choose to make the book look the way that it looks? Some, a coffee table book, something that people could be proud of. Oh, well, thank you very much for that question and um, for uh, your compliments regarding the book. Uh, the book um, is really the culmination of several years of work in this neighborhood. Uh, and one of our top priorities in developing the book was to get as many visual images as we could. Um, and we've used every visual image that we felt would help tell the story, even if um, the quality of the visual image was not perfect. So we searched every available public archive in the city of Cleveland to find um, images that would help tell this story. And then we were also fortunate um, that we were able to obtain a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanity to make a call to the general public 
for images from personal collections, which, which are, uh, you know, people's scrapbooks, the, your mother's photograph collection, uh, uh, various personal um, images from uh, the families that settled uh, Lee Harvard and Leesville, because what we're doing here is really telling a people's story. Um, so we wanted to animate the story just uh, unabashedly, really richly, because uh, our, our, our project, it's first publication we've ever um, produced, and it, it was, our, our intent is to make it I think uh, readable, accessible, and combine um, uh, the historic aspects of it, which um, Todd is the our expert historian, and and wrote um, the three chapters of the book. But we wanted the images that would help bring that history to life. So I have a question for you about like it's Cleveland Restoration Society. I think of you as frankly kind of a downtown organization. Where you guys are located. Um, how did you go about building trust with the residents of Lisaville to get access to their images? And then also, I, it's my understanding that you also did a fair number of um, oral histories. Like, how did you yes. guys work about trust building with that group to get them to tell you their stories? Yes. Well, uh, we do have a headquarters building um, in the ring just uh, outside of downtown, and our organization did start out as the Downtown Restoration Society over 40 years ago, but the majority of our work is in the neighborhoods of Cleveland, and our biggest program is our Heritage Home Program, which we were operating in Lee Harvard and Lee Seville, but it was the then councilman of the ward that suggested um, we interview uh, elders in the community, do oral histories with elders in the community. And it was through learning their stories that we got really motivated um, to learn more. And um, I guess I'd like to say that uh, it, in this instance, we're experts on the brick and mortar of houses and, and um, buildings. We can solve just about any problem with an older and historic building. But in this uh, project, it's the story of the people that settled the neighborhood that is really much more significant than the architecture or city planning aspects of the buildings. So, you know, obviously the human story is really always more captivating than uh, brick and stone. So it was... Uh, really an important priority for us to be able to um, tell that human story. Um, you mentioned trust. Uh, I think we had good partners in the neighborhood. We had the councilman. Uh, we still, the, uh, we have today, the councilman of today, Joe Jones. He's really supportive of our work here. And then Harvard Community Services Center has been our partner for many years now, we like to call Harvard Community Services Center, our second home, all of our um, public programs, are, uh, most of them are there. Todd, we've had Todd come in and you've given lectures there. Um, you know, Kathleen, and then, this is a question that um, I, I really want to throw out to you. You know, you just said that, um, that Cleveland Restoration Society can solve any, any issue with the building um, and the brick and stone, but the human story is so much more captivating. What jumped out at me yeah. in the book is this, though, that um, I kind of walked away from the book thinking of 
the Blacks who settled this area as almost an undocumented people. And that so much of their lives had to be reconstructed through the buildings, like about who, like who built the building, right? Who was the owner, who was the owner of the property? So I guess maybe this is a question for you and both Todd, like how did you go about reconstructing the lives of an almost undocumented people? I'm thinking sort of especially of the story of Arthur Boosie, right? where it sounds like you didn't have a great deal of oral history about him, but you had to find him through the projects that he worked on. Gosh, if I could maybe handle that one. This is a real challenge for historians. Uh, someone like me spends a lot of time learning how to navigate public land records and read census pages, look through city directories, uh, there are a lot of archival collections available, but they tend to privilege the experiences of, of people who were in a position to record their experiences or who uh, were engaged in public service. So I think you really need to break through and start talking to people, getting oral histories if you're going to connect up those sources. And as as hard as you may try, you can only kind of get the basic outlines by looking at archives. And that's why this process of building trust with communities is so important. And I think that we discovered that, you know, this story is very well known within the community. The residents of Lee Harvard had a proud heritage uh, and a story that they knew amongst themselves. The real challenge was really to turn that story outward and present it to the broader uh, African-American community and Cleveland community as a story worthy of being told. It tells us something about the aspirations of a people and the uh, history of the built environment in a part of our city that people maybe haven't spent as much time on as other places. So again, I think you need to work both sides. You, you, and, and that even being said, you're not, you're not gonna maybe find some, sto some stories that get lost with Bussy especially we were frustrated. Both Kathleen and I went down to uh, Augusta, Georgia. I, I live in Atlanta right now, so that wasn't nearly as ambitious uh, for me as it was for her. But just so many loose ends trying to follow up and uh, find someone's story who's, you know, been passed for maybe the, the last 30 years. Um, it was extremely frustrating. And we got little tidbits and had to speculate. Um, but just talking to some residents in Lee Harvard, they are able to tell us something about Mr. Bussey's personality, some interactions they'd had with him and getting financing or what it was like to buy one of his homes. So I think, again, it's just really so important to use the archival sources in conjunction with uh, people's memories and to try and document those memories before they disappear. Yeah, if I could, if I could say something about Arthur Bussey too. Um... This was one of the most exciting things for me uh, when we discovered Arthur Bussey because we had an AmeriCorps um, staff member who was uh, working to um, document what we call mid-century modern um, neighborhoods and, and buildings all across Northeastern Ohio. She had a, it was a, a, one of these uh, really broad architectural surveys, very thin in its um, research. And uh, I was able to get her to come and look at Lee Harvard and Leesville, and she came upon this street, Myrtle and Highview, <clears throat> south of Miles. And um, 
was uh, really impressed with the architecture of the homes. These are really fine brick homes with um, stone, sandstone, uh, and um, stone details, bay windows, oversized chimneys, really uh, steep roof lines, really very impressive. Um, classic uh, post-World War II architecture, but a little oversized. It's something sort of reaching to a higher architectural plane like uh, uh, the adjacent Shaker Heights. So it gave her pause, it gave us pause. We thought, wow, these are really nice houses. And she did a little bit of investigation and found out that um, uh, the houses were advertised in the call and post. I don't believe we saw any advertisements in the plane dealer. So here we had, um, that's how we found Arthur Bossy. We found that he was advertising, I believe exclusively, now I may need to be proved wrong on that, but in the call and post. So that's when we realized, and the, the prices too, of the houses were a little higher than what uh, we saw in some of the other post-World War II residential areas in the region. So to me, that was extremely exciting. And then, then, it, then we began to you know, uh, learn about his background, being trained as a bricklayer, coming out north during the Great Migration, uh, uh, and um, really fighting for the, oper uh, for the chance to build buildings. I mean, he, he was an advocate for, for black builders in Cleveland among black architects, right, Todd? You, you discovered that. I would also just build on what Kathleen just said about the call and post. I, I think in this moment when even the clean, Cleveland Plain Dealer has effectively shut down, we forget just how important local newspapers were. At one point, Cleveland had something like four or five daily newspapers. We had the Cleveland Press, we had the Cleveland Plain Dealer, we had the Cleveland News. Then we had the call and post and actually those were previously two separate black newspapers that merged in 1934. Uh, we had labor papers, Catholic papers. Um, this was such a rich and vibrant um, tradition and source of information for historians. I, I, I feel as though the 20th century is better documented maybe than any other century. Uh, a lot of the things that we're producing today on the internet may not even be around in a hundred years if those websites aren't kept up and running. Whereas you can go and read three different accounts of a neighborhood meeting in Lee Harvard in the various uh, newspapers of the day and get different angles on what was covered in a way that's virtually impossible now. And that vibrant black press was just so important to um, document the community's activities and to serve as advertising and promotion of business. And so that was one of the most uh, important sources for the project as well. And then one of the things I noticed is that uh, you also wrote that Lee Harvard, in fact, had its own local paper that it published, which I'm sure that you tapped into as a historian. So then you kind of talked about the annexation um, of this neighborhood. Um, actually, I want to even go back to prior to the annexation. Um, can you talk about um, sort of African-American, uh, because you do cover this in the book, I know that you cover it more inside of your, um, your longer work, uh, Surrogate Suburbs, but can you talk about um, African-Americans from the South clustering in uh, Central prior to World War I? 
and how it is that because your book is you know it's 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 about suburbanization right this is not it's 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 interesting because it's very specifically kind of as Kathleen was talking about that you know these houses over in Lee Harvard Lisaville are exquisitely made right that we're talking about the movement of the African American middle class so can you talk about like who was moving into central and why they started moving out to sort of the rolling rural areas of Lisaville. Absolutely. Well, as we know, um, many, many people, many black people in Cleveland and other similar northern cities have roots in the south. And uh, the movement uh, of African-American people to uh, northern cities and later western cities, one of the largest internal migrations in world history, and we call this the Great Migration. And this was a uh, result of some different factors. There were, there were job opportunities in the World War I era. Um, and also there were reasons why people wanted to leave the South because they were locked in debt peonage as sharecroppers. They were being um, harassed and murdered by groups like the Ku Klux Klan. Um, they were uh, not able to get a, a good education because of the Jim Crow school system. So there were reasons why people were moving to these cities. But of course, when they got to places like Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit, uh, it wasn't always what it was cracked up to be. They encountered job discrimination and they were often kind of uh, corralled into these areas of the city uh, like Cedar Central that uh, quickly became overcrowded. And, you know, these were important places because there were a lot of black community institutions that developed in Cedar Central. Uh, there's a lot of vibrancy there. But some people, especially people coming from a rural uh, background, had different ideas about uh, what kind of lifestyle they wanted. Um, they had ideas about how to foster self-sufficiency. So they liked to grow some of their own food, raise chickens. They knew how to build houses. A lot of people, whether or not they had formal building training, uh, builder training like Arthur Bussey, they had built buildings, uh, barns. Uh, in many cases, their own houses down south. So they wanted to basically set up uh, a kind of self-sufficient lifestyle that leveraged those traditions and those survival skills, but also took advantage of the big northern city that had a variety of different job opportunities um, that they didn't have in the south. So um, it, was, it was kind of a best of both worlds. Uh, it was an idea that they were going to tap these new job opportunities to the extent they were able to. Um, and again, it didn't always pan out, but they were also going to use some of that Southern heritage and those skills uh, to, to ensure that they had some security. If they could buy some land and build their own house, then they would always have something to call their own. Um, and a lot of people, uh, you know, they, they wanted to get out of the overcrowded inner city and get to the outer city, which is what I call these places in my book. Um, so this, coincided with the developing um, American dream of, of the suburbs, but it may not have you know, been that original intention. When people were moving to places like uh, what became Lee Harvard to, to Miles Heights in the 1920s, it didn't look anything like the post-war suburbs that uh, we've chronicled in this book. But as that uh, post-war uh, development reached out, they went along with it and were kind of incorporated into that dream. And it just kind of made sense. So this yearning after space and after a place of one's own 
um, as one historian has called it, it kind of coincided with that developing um, American dream in the post-World War II period. Well, I think that one of the things that really kind of jumps out in the book, though, is that that's where they could go. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of options for where African-Americans were permitted to build. And so um, I believe the name of this original community was Miles Heights. Is that what it was called? Yes. Okay, so that it was, was Miles Heights. And then um, you also mentioned earlier that it was um, one of the uh, one of the last uh, suburban areas, so to speak, that was annexed into Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how the annex annexation of Miles Heights sort of played into the institutional racism of the time, that it was um, very much an issue of uh, removing political power from a growing black middle class. Right. Gosh, that's a really interesting story that we uncovered further in the book. I, I think people are starting to know more about Miles Tights. One of the things I love about your book is that you make sure that you name um, African-Americans. And so then their mayor was Arthur Johnston. Um, that's one of the things I think that the book does extraordinarily well is that it just doesn't leave black people as unnamed people, but really kind of like, really, as I said before, instead of making them an undocumented person, you're essentially restoring them to their importance in history. Well, as we know, um, Cleveland is famous for electing the first uh, black mayor of a major city, Carl Stokes. But here we have an example 40, 50 years earlier of a small um, suburban municipality electing a black mayor uh, in 1929. So, uh, and, and Arthur Johnson turns out to be a pretty fascinating figure. Um, he was a county uh, road foreman. This was uh, uh, work that was more relatively more open to African Americans at the time. So he would have supervised the building of roads. And you can imagine him kind of gaining some familiarity with the area he would later move to as he's building these roads out uh, into the hinterlands, right? Mm. Um, he was also a Jamaican immigrant. And there's very, very small presence of West Indian immigrants in Cleveland's black community at this time, only about one to 2%. Um, but uh, that, I found that quite fascinating as well. And um, Miles Heights incorporated in 1925 and was annexed by Cleveland in uh, 1930 and, uh, 31 and 32. So it was relatively short-lived. Um, it was sparsely populated. Um, a lot of the early residents, um, besides being African-American, it was about one-third Black, um, were Southern and Eastern European immigrants, especially Italians. And um, they tried to make a go of it. They tried to, they had a village hall, they had a school, Beehive School, which was built in 1917. Um, when the Great Depression uh, uh, hit, uh, there was some kind of bootlegging that was going on in, in this area, it's similar to Lindale on the west side. In fact, um, this area was a railroad terminus. Um, a lot of the early black residents actually worked on the railroads and there was a switching yard where they would turn locomotives around. Um, and so you kind of start to, to get a sense of why this is there and why, why it made sense. And, um, really just how Cleveland swallowed up this municipality and used some pretty strong arm tactics to annex uh, Miles Heights. You There's mentioned actually, the um, Citizens League and, um, in the book, and they have like a pretty, you know, a, pre a pretty fame, a fairly infamous reputation amongst uh, Black people. 
Right. I mean, I, and I would say also maybe kind of a um, storied history among white people. I mean, we think of this as like a good government league who uh, was against corruption and they put out information on candidates. I was just digging around the other day to see, you know, what records might uh, exist for the Citizens League. And we, we don't necessarily get this whole other side where they identified Mouse Heights as a, you know, Black-led municipality that needed to be kind of incorporated into the city, that it was uh, corrupt, that it was, um, uh, it was uh, financially uh, unstable. And so they basically recruited white supporters in Miles Heights to vote for annexation. And there may even have been kind of a, an armed strong, like a, a strong arming. We have this really mysterious photo that Michael Fleener uh, with Cleveland Restoration Society um, discovered of these residents posing in Miles Heights City Hall with pistols on the eve of annexation. And um, we, many people often assume that those were people who oppose annexation um, but Michael wasn't so sure whether those were pro or anti-annexation folks. Um, so there's still a lot about Miles Heights' uh, his history that I think we could delve further into. It's really kind of a fascinating episode in Cleveland history um, that we're so happy to be able to incorporate into this um, publication. Well, so one of the things that happened in Mile Heights that you that you did document was um, the political activism of the African-American residents right there now, right now. I'm sorry, during that time period. And you always kind of think of like black activism as sort of mm -hmm. uh, having its root through the 50s and the 60s, but it sounds like there was a fair amount that started right there um, in the 1920s. Absolutely. Well, so one thing that Miles Heights struggled with as a small municipality was was funding improvements like sewers, public schools, things like that. And again, the early residents were very self-sufficient. They were willing to use outhouses, so they didn't necessarily see the need for a sewer system. Um, some of them used kerosene lamps instead of electricity. Once this area got annexed to the city of Cleveland, there's really absolutely no reason why they shouldn't have got infrastructure like everyone else had. That's, that was the primary argument of the city of Cleveland as to why they wanted to annex places like Miles Heights was so that they could develop them out, uh, put in modern infrastructure. And the fact that they let Miles Heights languish for another 20 or 30 years without paved roads, without door-to-door -door mail uh, delivery service, without sewers, you know, very quickly became obvious it was because this was a black um, uh, area. And there was a group called the Miles Heights Progressive League that started lobbying the city in 1947 for these improvements and started pressuring the city um, to upgrade the roads, put in um, sewers, um, even extend bus service. Uh, the Cleveland Transit Company did not run a Lee Road bus line south of Shaker Heights until the mid 1950s. So you know, at, at the point that Miles Heights got annexed, that, then this argument that, you know, the tax base wouldn't support these kinds of improvements went completely out the window. And it just became completely obvious that white residents um, didn't want to extend the same uh, amenities to black residents. And they started <laughs> using this as an argument for why they wanted to eradicate the community. They described it as a slum, Cleveland's tobacco road, uh, not up to the standards of the surrounding area. And Miles Heights Progressive League pushed back on that and demanded these kinds of improvements as an argument that they had the right to stay. And Cleveland uh, and the developers who wanted to try and eradicate the community quickly found out 
that they were not going to be able to do that because people had an established foothold and owned their properties and were willing to fight for what they had. So one of the things that um, your book here, Kathleen and Todd, does extraordinarily well, um, especially in a lovely, short, readable book, like not a big academic tome, is explain the whys of um, Black impoverishment rather than the simply the what. Like we all are very familiar with um, the wealth gap, right? Now, how many times can we possibly hear it? But you guys really jump into the whys. Now, Todd, what you just talked about is one of the reasons why, right? So you have African-American residents in this Lisaville neighborhood, later um, Lee Harvard, who were paying taxes like everybody else, but mm -hmm. were not connected to water and sewer until 1954 mm -hmm. and didn't really get paved roads until 1954. Now you talk about some of the other causes of economic disparities too. You spend some time talking about uh, blockbusting, right? And the complicity of uh, a whole league of appraisers who would lowball the values of houses, as well as, um, as banks who simply, I, I mean, I was floored, right? And this one section you have where banks would utter to a potential um, black homeowner that we do not lend mortgages to black people in white neighborhoods until the street is 50% black. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was extraordinary stuff. Do you want to talk more about um, how, and, and, and again, I just, I love your orientation on it, that you talked about um, the economic disparities as something that white residents um, as, as appraisers, um, as government entities, because you like actually implicate CMHA in this too, right? About how they yep. impoverish these residents. I mean, do you want to expand on it? Absolutely. I, I think this is an important part of the story. Uh, we have to acknowledge people's uh, personal uh, and family histories and how they, you know, feel that they succeeded. But we have to also look at the bigger picture of structural inequality and the kind of roadblocks that were set up in front of people and then you know then they're expected to succeed nonetheless which many of them did that's what's so amazing about this area and this story is all the kinds of um, roadblocks that were placed in their way uh, ways that things were made more difficult um, Kathleen and Michael uncovered the story of a family who bought a house and the white owners would not give them the keys to the house even though the 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 loan and clothes and everything they had to put their kid down through the mail chute to break into their own house you know so people found creative ways to get around these kinds of indignities and succeeded nonetheless but i think especially in this moment when we're becoming more aware of why we see a, a racial wealth gap and you know what explains the uh, state of uh wealth formation in this country i think it's important to to, to tell the fullest story and sometimes you know stories that people um even the people involved aren't necessarily um aware of uh, a lot of historians talk in these terms but when i would go and interview black families in these areas they didn't always um they didn't always think right to the bigger structural uh dimension or they didn't think about cleveland deindustrialization so when a lot of his, historians write the story of cleveland or detroit it's about how factories leaving um, destroyed the economic base and then this had ramifications down the line for neighborhoods. A lot of people don't think in those terms. So it's important to explain that, but at the same time, 
acknowledge you know people's personal agency we talk about agency the um, ability of people to take control of their life and make decisions and um, uh, make the consequences for their own destiny and so i think it's important to acknowledge that but within the context of, a, of the larger structural realities that we all have to face and different people have different abilities to succeed depending on how much wealth they uh, inherit what the color of their skin um, uh, opportunities may create for them or prevent them from taking advantage of. It's an important dimension and it's something I think people are becoming more uh, aware of. And it's just more important now to talk about that than maybe um, ever before. So Kathleen, quickly, so then can you talk a bit about, let's actually, let's spend some time talking about the agency. So in the book, you uncover like lives that might've been forgotten, right? So there's the story of Albert Tabor. Um, I imagine that you were able to find that story. So that he's this extraordinary black man who was, who, as I understand it, not only um, built a real estate construction company where he's building houses in these neighborhoods, but he also um, worked with a black bank, I believe it's called Quincy, correct me if I'm wrong, who was able to get financing for these black people. That had to have been an amazing find for you, and I'm sure you're pretty proud of it. Can you talk about it? Yeah, yeah. Chapter two in our book, we titled um, Black Builder Entrepreneurs Fulfilled the Dream South of Miles. Uh, in our field of historic preservation, we magnify um, stories of buildings, architects, sometimes builders and craftspeople. And so that's real. that was very much our intention with this middle chapter to talk about who were these men? They're all men. I'm sure there were women in the background, but mostly they're all men um, that built so many houses. Most of these houses are uh, south of Miles. Uh, we need to do more research in this regard, but um, it appears to us that because of the existence of the village south of Miles, um, that uh, there, um, this was an area that was um, uh, sort of conducive or more welcoming than north of Miles uh, for the men to build. So uh, I'm very proud of this because we have a full chapter on Al Taborn. We started with Al Taborn, Todd, remember, because he was the most prolific. Todd and Michael Fleener on our staff were able to pull um, digital records from these various um, sources and his name is all over the place, his name, his company name, et cetera. And then uh, we were able also to be in touch with his two daughters that are still alive. And so, um, uh, so, so the story of Al Taborn was uh, maybe by comparison a little easier than some of the other stories. The story of Al Taborn is also remarkable to me because he was absolutely a an advocate for himself and his profession, um, and um, a bit of a politician. He, that guy could get his foot in the door with the, um, at City Hall uh, with the community development, economic development plans of the day in the city of Cleveland to advocate for his community. Um, and, and he became part of the um, bigger system to to help develop the city of cleveland so and he was just like a serial entrepreneur he was like a big time vision guy 
who always saw the next thing. And then I think maybe Cleveland couldn't hold him because of that. But, but so I really like this chapter because we were able to, well, Todd did, did most of the work here, but we were able to document their lives. That I think is so important too. We have a chapter on uh, Al Tabern, a chapter on Arthur Bussey, um, a chapter on Rufus Reynoldson. Nobody would know who Rufus Reynoldson was, I think, once we did this book. And yet we found Rufus Reynolds, Reynoldson's uh, widow with this beautiful photograph of him uh, uh, and a photograph of him in his army uniform. Uh, so uh, we're able to tell the story of Rufus Reynoldson. And that there are more builders out there, by the way. We just documented in this book what we knew at the time. We still, there are still families that we are hearing about that had a document those stories, conduct oral histories about those stories. Because, um, you know, every year that goes by, uh, we, lose, we lose people that lived those, those stories. So it sounds like Tabor also created a whole architectural style or kind of a construction technique with his interlocking bricks. Yeah, he, he, he did. I think it was sort of an efficiency of building method. I think it's very much the, the buildings are designed of the kind of of the time, mm -hmm. but his uh, focus was to provide um, uh, affordable housing um, and uh, some of the other builders uh, formed cooperatives in order to uh, build buildings more affordably. So those structural issues that uh, were um, referred to of gaining access to land and credit, you know, it was through the, the maneuvering and creativity of um, these men that they were able to build buildings very much targeted, I think, to the residents of um, Cedar Central who wanted to get out to, you know, greener pastures. You know, if I could just add to something um, Kathleen was saying, um, I actually had a fortuitous <laughs> coincidence. Uh, I'm on Twitter and it turned out that Al Taborn's uh, daughter, uh, Karen, is on Twitter and she had posted a picture of her father uh, an award he'd won from the Saturday Evening Post for his home designs. And we got in touch and it just took off from there. And one of the most gratifying experiences was when the Cleveland Restoration Society organized a bus tour of these areas uh, a couple summers ago. And I had the honor of leading the bus tour and Karen Taborn was on that bus and we drove up whole uh, blocks where her father had built dozens of houses and just to see uh, she'd always wanted to um, see these houses because she hadn't been uh, living in Cleveland since she was a young girl and she was just so thrilled to see the kind of visible mark that her father had made on the landscape and uh, it was just really such an uplifting moment to celebrate that and uh, the variety of people we had on that tour were uh, local government folks were residents uh, were suburbanites. Um, just everyone seemed to just get it at that moment. And especially with the Taborns, that was just, it, uh, it worked the way that it was supposed to. We, we, I was able to document the story using the available public records, but also to get the family perspective and those wonderful photographs just brought it all together. 
This concludes the first part of Maisha Hedden's interview with Todd Michney and Kathleen Crowther on the making of Cleveland's black suburb in the city, Lisaville and Lee Harvard. Make sure to tune in next week for the continuation of their conversation. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links to the books discussed in this episode in the description. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books, loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks, or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year to help keep this podcast going. Again, all of these options will be linked in the description below. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Margie Adams. Be sure to tune in next week for more bookish content, and thanks for listening.